So a few years ago, we were going over the, uh, the new Barnabas students that had just been selected. It was exactly at this time of year. And we realized that three of the students who were going to be Barnabas had all survived cancer. And I thought, huh, I wonder if they'd want to get together. And this was about at the same time that we had another student who was coming back into Calvin after cancer treatment. And I thought, hmm, maybe she'd like to get together with them. And so I wrote them and I said, do you guys want to get together? And they said, yes, yes, we do. And so we get together now and we've expanded. Our group has grown. And we get together three or four or five times a semester for a meal and just to talk and encourage each other. And so when the testimony time came up, I asked them, would you guys be willing to share your stories? And they said, yes, eagerly. And so uh, please welcome to the stage our brothers and sisters. Come on up, guys. So, Lisa, I think you've got a screen with their names on it. There we go. And they're going to sit in order of their names, so you can uh, figure out who's who. Vanessa, thanks. <laughs> Ella, Megan, Vanessa, Christy. Okay, good. Kyle Morgan. Great, great. This is our group. This is our team. Um, you, many of you know them for their leadership roles on campus. You know that um, they've taken a, a great... Uh, a great story here to our campus. You know that uh, for Ella, this is like her first semester because um, she was supposed to join us last fall and then moved in, and the day after move-in was diagnosed. And so she is uh, enjoying her first semester, and she's going to have a full summer taking classes to catch up. So super excited about that. So she's our newest member of the group, and everyone else can. So the first thing we're going to do is just have each of them tell their story, and, um, and if any of you need to move to get more access or you need to be encouraging with eye contact for one of your people, please feel free to do that. So, Ellie, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, well, like Pastor Mary said, um, I moved into Calvin very unsure of what was happening in life. Um, I discovered a golf ball-sized lump on my lower neck um, the end of July, and we had a lot of testing done, and... Um, August 30th, I had a surgery to like remove the lymph node and get it biopsied. Um, and we are supposed to find out results within one to two days. Uh, Move-in day was August 31st, so I moved in and tried to like be excited about college, but in the back of my head, like I just knew um, that something wasn't right. And then September 1st, we got the call. Um, I was diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, the treatment was four rounds of aggressive chemotherapy. Um, thankfully, it only took three months, and then on December 7th, I was declared in remission. So. Okay. Hi, I'm Megan, and I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia uh, my senior year of high school, about halfway through, and so my treatment involved a lot of chemotherapy, and then a bone marrow transplant. And then I started here my freshman year that following fall, and shortly into the semester I relapsed, and I got another bone marrow transplant and some more chemotherapy. And then due to complications, I ended up in the ICU completely sedated and on a ventilator for a little over a month. 
And then coming out of that, I required a lot of um, rehabilitative therapy. And I received another year of chemo. And I think that's about it, but <laughs> I, I still um, have monthly appointments um, just because of complications with the transplant. And I've been cancer-free for three years now. Um, I'm Vanessa, and as you can see, it's pretty hard for us to like briefly sum up our stories. But um, in eighth grade, I was diagnosed with a tumor, um, a type of Ewing sarcoma um, that was cancerous. And so I went through several rounds of chemotherapy. Um, from November 2009 to November 2010. Um, and in the middle there, um, the chemo had shrunk the tumor, but I got a pretty massive surgery to remove the rest of it. Um, so really since 2011, I've been cancer-free. Um, but as any of us would tell you, it's definitely not just like you're cancer-free and never see a doctor again. <laughs> so it's still a big part of our stories. and after two years of lots of tests and going to lots of doctors and um, an intense surgery to remove a tumor, I was diagnosed with um, myxopapillary ependymoma in seventh grade. Um, we found out that that was an incredibly rare kind of cancer. Um, there was only two other people in the past 50 years that have been diagnosed with this kind of cancer. In, um, North America, and both of those people were adults, and it was in their brain. So as a child, and it was in my spinal cord, this was basically a one-of-a-kind case. Um, so because um, it was so rare, they didn't really have a go-to treatment plan, um, and so they decided after the surgery I would just be monitored. Um, so every three months I would have MRI scans um, to check the resection area um, to make sure it wasn't growing back. Um, I had those scans for two years, and then we found out that I had relapsed. Um, so at that point, we kind of had to make a decision of what the next treatment plan would be. Um, we decided to go with radiation therapy. I had 28 radiation um, treatments uh, my freshman year in January, my freshman year of high school. Um, and then since then, I've um, continued to have MRI scans to make sure uh, that it has not come back, um, but since then, I've been good. Um, I will continue to have these scans until 2022, um, just to make sure that um, it isn't coming back because it's so rare they're not really sure um, what it will do, so, but at this point, I'm healthy, happy, living good. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Kyle. Uh, let's see, is the year 2011, which was my freshman year of high school. I was diagnosed with AML leukemia, and that resulted in six months of chemotherapy. Uh, for the most part, I was in isolation, um, and then eight months later, I was in remission, and I had a relapse. So then I had another four months of chemo and radiation, and then I had a bone marrow transplant, and now I'm in five years remission. 
Hi, I'm Morgan. I had a very similar uh, case as Ella. So my senior year of high school, um, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma after finding a lump on my neck as well uh, the previous December, so the December of my junior year of high school. Uh, and I waited to get it checked out until the summer, which is why there's such a big gap there. Um, so I got checked out, biopsied, um, and was diagnosed with stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma as well. Um, and then did, from August to December, did intensive chemotherapy as well. And since then, have been cancer-free. So each of you had this scary word spoken over your life, that, you know, you have cancer. And that not only puts your life in a tailspin, it puts the lives of your parents. We've got a few parents here. It puts their lives into a tailspin, and everything kind of gets your whole thing just kind of gets thrown up in the air and it takes a while for things to settle. So during that tumultuous time, what did that do to your relationship with God, your faith life, your practices, all that? How did it impact that? Any of you can go. Um, I think for me, it was definitely um, a very tangible reminder of my dependence on God. Um, and so my faith and my dependence on him just became so real um, because it was so physical. Um, and so I think definitely affected how I communicated with him, um, like just basically thought of God a lot more and um, was constantly reading little note cards with psalms on them. <laughs> and um, yeah, I would say my dependence on God all of a sudden became something I was thinking about a lot, um, which is not something that was on my mind before as a healthy gymnast in eighth grade. <laughs> um, for me, it was more of frustration. Uh, it's like, hang with me, because it's going to sound a little weird at first. I was frustrated with God because I felt like I didn't deserve, like I was a good person, right? Like I didn't deserve cancer, which nobody does, so that's not what I'm saying. Um, but like, I think through that process, it was just a realization of like, bad things don't happen to bad people. Bad things happen to everybody. Um, like the rain falls on the field everywhere. And so I think at first it was just a lot of frustration, like you chose me, like you picked me, and I didn't do anything to deserve it. Um, and then later it was, this was something that happened to me and God was just as upset as I was. We were all young and for me, I thought I was indestructible. I was young and foolish. I still am young and foolish. <laughs> but it, it presented me with my own mortality and how small my life actually was. And as Vanessa said, it did place a greater dependence on God because our lives were in God's hand. And it, it always is in our hands. But again, I was young and foolish. And it taught me a great lesson, and I'm grateful for it. Um, for me, it was more just a feeling of um, being very alone. Um, like knowing that nobody else had a diagnosis like me. The doctors didn't really know what to do with me. And then 
No one else around me had been diagnosed with childhood cancer, not having anyone to relate to. And so um, it was really just out of desperation that I turned to God because I didn't have anywhere else to turn. Yeah, I definitely resonate. Um, I was going to say a lot of what Morgan said. Um, initially, it was a feeling of anger and frustration. Um, you know, I was so excited for college, and then that just got, like, stripped away. And um, that's just, like, yeah, when I realized that, you know, this life is bigger than ourselves. Like, it's not up to us what happens to us or how God uses us. Um, but that's what's so cool is because he usually uses us in ways that are so much bigger than ourselves and to do things that we never imagined that we would do. Going off of the whole dependence thing, um, I'm very much a type A speech pathology person. <laughs> and so before I was diagnosed, I like to have, well, I still like to have everything very planned, like every detail I like to know. But nobody plans on getting diagnosed with cancer. And so it was a big flip in perspective that I just need to let go and just give God control because I clearly don't have any control in this situation and he does and he's going to take care of me. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, this is a question I didn't prepare you for. But um, was there, at what point were you really scared? Like did you have a point where you thought, oh man, this is a, like, do you remember that? And then do you remember how long that stayed? And for a lot of people, when they go through a, a trial, there's like this movement back and forth, right? I'm, I'm totally at peace. I'm panicked. I'm totally at peace. I'm panicked. Did you, was that a similar thing to you? Was there a trajectory to the, to the treatment from the diagnosis through the treatment where you felt like I'm getting better at this thing or I'm still, you know, one step forward, two steps back on the faith thing? I have a very clear um, instance when I was scared. Um, after two rounds of induction chemotherapy, when I was first diagnosed, 85% of people go into remission. But I found out I was part of the 15% that didn't. And so um, getting that news was very scary. <laughs> and we invited our pastor over to the hospital room because I was in isolation also and he read the James 5 passage and anointed me with oil. And the next morning, the doctor came in with that she had found a clinical trial for me to enter. And that clinical trial actually was the drug that put me into remission and able to have my bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a super long period of time that was very scary, but the whole thing is pretty scary. <laughs> so that was just a little bit more intense for that night. <laughs> I think a lot of it for me was more, I could feel that the people around me mm. felt more like fearful than I did. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't, I think some of you have said that at first it doesn't like hit you right away. It's kind of like a, oh, okay, I have this diagnosis now, but it's not until later that it's like, wow, like I have cancer. Um, and so it was more of feeling that the people around you are afraid and are scared or upset or whatever and then just you you're very helpless in that fear and in that way i don't remember ever feeling personally like super afraid um like the odds for hodgkin's lymphoma are great 
because we have great science and good things like that. So I think it was more of a feeling of helplessness in other people's fear. Mm -hmm. um, similar to Morgan again, um, yeah, like the odds for Hodgkin's lymphoma are, are great. So I went into it um, feeling like all right, but like feeling like I could, I could handle it. Um, and then just like little things kept arising, little complications. Um, they found that I had fluid around my heart, so I had to like delay the start of treatment, which scared me because I thought it would progress. Um, later on, I got a blood clot, and so that delayed again. It was just those little things that really put me on edge and made me like fearful that the treatment wasn't going to go as planned. Um, <laughs> I was the most scared, um, like obviously initially, but at that point I was in seventh grade, so I don't think I really totally understood the um, like depth of what was happening to me. Um, but. I think I was the most scared when I relapsed when I was two years older, just because then I understood it that much more. And at that point, I thought I was home free, and then to hear, oh, that scan didn't come back so good. And then to have to call the rest of my family and um, all my friends and tell them that, that was a rough night. I'm gonna second that. <laughs> What did people do that was helpful to you during your time? I think just being there and um, not saying necessarily anything. Because like a lot of us have said already, there was nobody in my life that had cancer when they were young. Um, everybody in my treatment center was like 40 plus. So I couldn't even relate to the people that I was getting treatment with. And but my friends just came around me and were there for me. And they didn't pressure me to be upset at moments or to be happier. It was just like, I'm here with you and I love you and I want you to express whatever it is that you are feeling. For me, the biggest thing was being treated as normal. Uh, for the most part, I, had, I was hooked up to uh, fluids and blood and all that, but what helped was if my friends or family came in, treat it as if like nothing's ever happened, because that's, that's really what you want. You want to go back to your normal life, but you can't, so you have to make do with what you can. I always appreciated if my grandma would come and we'd play cards, or uh, I wasn't able to play like soccer or anything, but FIFA, always great. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna second uh, being treated normally was great. Um, going to go hang out with friends and not being um, asked about like how my last hospital visit was or something was actually really nice. Um, I even like swam in my friend's pool in the summer and no one said anything about the fact that I had to take off my wig to swim and um, probably looked a little skeletal, but <laughs> um, I think being treated normally was wonderful. And then also um, when people offered help, I thought that was great, but I really appreciated when they didn't push it. Um, so if they just offered help and I knew they were there, that was great. They didn't have to offer every day and keep asking. What did people do that was less than helpful? Or say that was less than helpful? How are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> mm. 
um, like 80 times a day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like the normal thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like this question is hard to answer for me because I think a lot of the people, like they have the best intentions. You know, yep. everyone, yep. nobody knows what to say. Nobody knows how to handle it. And that's okay. Like, mm -hmm. I can't really point out and be like, oh, this wasn't, like there were things that weren't helpful, but I tried to look at it like everyone's trying to be helpful. They just don't mm -hmm. know what they're doing. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, and think about it this way, like every one of us at some point in our lives is going to have someone in our community of care who is diagnosed with cancer. So these, these aren't like hypothetical questions. What can we do that's helpful? What do we do that's less than helpful? Because you're going to be an elder, a deacon in a church. You're going to be a teacher or a nurse who has somebody in your community. You're going to be a business uh, employee and you're going to have another employee who gets, like all of us are going to have someone in our circles, our spheres of influence who are diagnosed. And so these are really important questions. So you are training all of these people on how to care well for people who have serious health diagnoses. Um, I would just build off of what Ella said in that, um, so like one specific instance, I had a lady super sweet and I'm sure she had the best intentions. She was like, I don't know, 80 or something. Um, but she came up to me after a church service um, in my hometown. She was like, oh, like, I'm praying for you, and like, I know God gave this to you for a reason. Mm. Yeah, don't, if, even if that's what you think has happened, like God has given this to someone, which um, personally, I don't think that that's the way he rolls, but um, <laughs> don't say that to anybody. Like, out of all the things to say, just say it in your head. <laughs> I didn't like receiving medical advice from um, peers and parents and anything like, you can juice the cancer away and, you know, things like that. <laughs> that was my least favorite. <laughs> ah, okay, good, good to know. <clears throat> Um, I'll second the medical advice and then also um, people assuming that they know everything that went on in your doctor appointment and thinking that they are your doctor or, oh, well, my, my dad or so-and-so had cancer and so I know exactly how you're feeling and this helped him so I bet this will help you and so I did this for you and that's kind of the same thing of the have good intentions, but at the same time, everybody's experience is completely different, and somebody could have the same diagnosis, the same treatment, and it could still be two totally different stories. Um, like, for example, I never had chemo, so I didn't lose my hair, but a very common question was, so how did, how did you deal with losing your hair? Well, <laughs> I didn't, so, <laughs> um, but just like not, asking those types of questions that are very specific to um, people's journeys because they're all very different. I think to build off of what I said earlier about people asking you how are you feeling, um, obviously that's out of good intentions, but I think um, what I really mean behind that is like to match the mood of the person you're asking. So a lot of times, um, like people would ask me, like, how are you feeling with a really heavy tone? And if I answered like, you know, I'm feeling great, then I would have appreciated if they would have just like switched over like, oh, okay, like she, she's fine, maybe she doesn't want to like go there. But instead they would be like, 
I know this is a really hard time for you. <laughs> and I was like, I just told you I was doing great. <laughs> um, so I think like matching the tone, because sometimes you do want to talk about how you're feeling, but like definitely not with everyone and definitely not a lot of times every day. Very good advice. Good. If there is one thing you want students to know about faith or about God or the practices of faith, as a result of your experience, what would that be? Um, for me, it's that God is weeping with you. Like that imagery and that, um, that idea was very profound and very comforting for me. Um, not that he was like way up in the clouds looking down, waiting for everything to work itself out, but he was with me, holding me or um, rejoicing with me. But a lot of the times it was when I was frustrated or mad because things weren't happening the way I wanted them to or I was missing out on something, like him being there with me. Um, and I'm, he's with anybody who's going through a trial or just anything because he's there. Um, so I think that was the, the biggest thing for me. I would say the power of prayer, because I think without that, probably none of us would be here right now. And so I would, I don't know, I think just going through this journey really made that real to me. Because mm -hmm. like there were just so many tangible instances that it occurred. And yeah, so I would just say the power of prayer. Um, I would second both of the things that they said. Um, and then also just that no trial is bigger than God. Um, no matter how awful, awful, awful it seems in the moment, um, he's always bigger and it's, he always has. It's still holding you and um, even if you don't realize it until 30 years later, he's mm -hmm. still there and he's working through it in, in you. I would say um, trusting God's plan. Um, when my plans got wrecked, I was very turned upside down. Um, and then I realized that like God has a plan, and he always has a plan, and his plans are always better than what I think my plans are. Um, he used me to like reach people in ways that I never would have been able to without my diagnosis, and I think that that helped me to realize that he knows what he's doing, always. And I second that, trust in God. Um, every day we're faced with obstacles of various magnitudes, and the only thing you can do at, at all points, really, is to trust in God, trust that he has your best interest at heart, and trust that he will lead you through the fire. Um, I would say something that I would hope people take out of this is, um, to remember when you come out of a trial, to make a tangible reminder of that, um, to remember God's faithfulness. Um, I feel like God has been able to kind of teach me this time and time again. Um, and like, maybe that's a physical object for you. I, I know some people like write on rocks and stuff to remember times where like God was faithful and answered prayers like the power of prayer. 
um, and where we trusted in him and he came through. But I mean, for me, um, a cool way for me to be like thankful um, is like the scars on my body from surgery and the pills that I take several times a day. And um, these things remind me of like how God's been faithful. And I think that's so important because like obviously this has affected my life a ton and affected all of our lives a ton. But sometimes I forget and I don't trust God with like things that this year probably would seem so small in comparison to uh, what I went through in eighth grade and freshman year. Um, and so just to consistently remind yourself of how God's been faithful to um, like also encourage yourself to trust in God now for whatever you're going through. It's a good word. When we met to get ready for this day, um, we talked about scripture and the role that scripture had played and we came up with a big list of scripture passages that had been helpful and uh, we printed some of them out and they're be available on the lecterns on the way out. There'll just be a list of references. And each student now is gonna read uh, a verse or two that were particularly helpful to them. So be sure you give the citation first before you read. All right. Um, this was a particularly important passage and my dad's work actually paid for like little rubber bands and printed all of them on the inside. It's Joshua 1.9. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is Isaiah 43.1-3. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you, through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be bur burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me will become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then a second verse, um, which kind of goes back to dependence. <laughs> Uh, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's Psalm 63, 8. So this is Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to keep still. And the next verse is one that popped up just everywhere throughout my whole journey, and you guys might recognize it because it is on the rock in the CFAC. 
It's Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Um, Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Why do you worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat, and what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today.